Psalm 13, for the director of music, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look, look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. This is the word of the Lord. One night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonging to him and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in his life. This really bothered him, and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. Some of you, I guess, will recognize the words as coming from the, I guess, famous Christian poem, Footprints. I think you, te- you tend to either either love or hate that poem if you know it. I think I think some people think it's a little, it's just it's just fairly naff. It's just overly sentimental, and um, it certainly is the kind of thing that you can find, you know, alongside the smile Jesus loves you pencil cases in that kind of slightly cringy bit in most Christian bookshops. So I know that I get that personally. I'm one of the people I, I love it. I think I think with certain sort of theological caveats, I, I think it's a lovely, I think it's a great poem. I'm getting the feeling you guys don't, so uh, okay, <laughs> from the kind of rippling laughter, that's fine, bear with me. We'll get to, we'll get to the end of it in, in due course, but up to where we've read, doesn't it, doesn't it raise certain questions, certain poignant questions that perhaps some of us tonight are wrestling with? Questions I'm sure some of us will wrestle with before long in our lives. Is God's love something that is tangible? Is God's love something that can be relied upon in our times of trouble when we need it most? Or is God's love something like a mirage? When you get to it, when you reach out for it, when you need it, there's nothing there. Does God abandon us in our times of trouble? Or more scary still, do we experience those times of trouble precisely because God has abandoned us? I don't know if it's your experience, but isn't it the case that sometimes 
when we're suffering, when life is hard, sometimes it's that feeling that that God has forsaken us. It's that feeling that God has abandoned us that sometimes is a harder burden to bear than the suffering itself. That certainly seems to be the experience of the man who wrote this psalm. If you closed your Bibles, please open them again on page 548. And smile at me when you found the page, so I know you're all there. Page 548. I'm getting some nice smiles. That's good. Psalm 13. When I say I say a psalm. It's written by David. I mean, you can tell that in that in that first line. But I say a psalm written by a man because I think more more than some of David's other psalms, this doesn't make reference to him being a king. It doesn't make reference to the Lord's people or him being leader of the Lord's people. This this is a man. This is an intensely personal psalm. Written by a man speaking to his God. Have a look down. Look how many times me or my or I is used in this psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Every day have sorrow in my heart, my enemy. Look on me, my enemy. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices. He has been good to me. A man before his God. A man dealing with suffering. A man dealing with feeling rejected by God in his suffering when he needed God most. It's it's the lonely cry of a child of God who feels abandoned by their father. We'll look at it it in three sections. I think it it sort of breaks down into three sections or or stanzas, if you want it to be a little bit pretentious and use the poetic term. Verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6. How long? Oh Lord, how long? How long? How long? The anguished cry, the pain of a man who feels abandoned. It's hard to know, as with many of the Psalms, it's hard to know exactly what the context of this Psalm is. Um, you'll notice reference to an enemy in verse 2 um, and verse 4. So per- perhaps this was, perhaps the enemy is referred to is, is Absalom, David's son, who, who, who rebelled against David and tried to kill him. Perhaps the enemy referred to came from earlier on in David's life. Perhaps it was the jealous King Saul, the first king of Israel, who, who tried to eliminate David. Because God had promised to David that he would take Saul's place on the throne. Some people, some commentators think, uh, do you see that reference in verse 3? 
where it says, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Down there, verse 3. Some people think that perhaps David was having to deal with an illness. Uh, Personally, I'm 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 not so convinced by that. The thing is, and kind of what struck me as I was preparing this psalm this week, is that actually, yes, there's an enemy, yes, there clearly is suffering, but it seems to me that what is, what is front and center for David, what is calling, causing him pain over and above the initial suffering, is this feeling of being abandoned by God. So verse 1, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And we remember that in the Old Testament, when it it talks about God turning his face on someone, it is a wonderful thing. When God turns his face on you, it means that, that you have God's smile upon you. And it means that God has gone out before you. God is going before you to bring you practical help and blessings. And that's why we have that famous, you know, that famous benediction. We said it this morning if you were there. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's a wonderful thing when the Lord turns his face to you. And it's even more poignant when we remember that David in another psalm says, One thing I ask of the Lord that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon his beauty. And so it's even more terrifying when it seems as if the Lord has turned his face away from David. Because when the Lord has turned his face away from you, it means those those practical blessings have been withheld. But yet, even more than that, As the phrase itself implies, the real pain, the real kicker, when it feels as if God has turned his face away from you, is that pain of a relationship severed. It's the pain of a friendship clouded over. It's the estrangement from God. How long will you hide your face from me? You ever felt like that? That God your Father had turned his face away from you? You know, perhaps, perhaps if David knew when this was going to end, perhaps if he knew, perhaps if he could see light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps he'd be able to cope with it. But there's no light when you feel like this. Hope and joy are are emotions that David has forgotten how to feel. He he thinks back to the times in the past when perhaps he he thinks he did feel like that, but he wonders whether that was just an illusion. As David contemplates the future, he just sees one grey, painful, abandoned day after another. He says, how long will you forget Forever. And when you feel like that, when you feel like that, it is, it is awful. 
David says, as he, as he contemplates this abandonment, he says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? You know, some, sometimes I think in the Bible when we use the word wrestle, we sort of have the idea, you know, the sort of uh, slightly, I suppose, strong idea of kind of you know, standing up to something, preaching the truth, wrestling with something. But I think in the context here, how it's used, there's, there's, no, there's no strength about David here. He's exhausted. I've got a, I've got a friend um, who, who's a black belt at jiu-jitsu. Uh, and I was I was foolish enough to to wrestle him uh, a few months ago, uh, and we, I, went, I was at his um, you know, dojo or whatever it is you call it, and um, you know I, I was cocky. I thought oh, I'll have a go. Uh, you know, I mean, he was he was just playing. He was playing with me, just letting me exhaust myself, and just you know I, th- I thought oh, I'm doing all right here. I'm doing all right here. You sort of getting, and he just absolutely nailed me. It was it was embarrassing, and you know I got up and I was I was panting for breath. Sweat was pouring off me. And if you'd have asked me, if you'd have asked me, how long, how long do you think you were down there sort of rolling around with him? I'd have said, oh, 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes. It was exhausting. And then you look at the clock and you've been down there three minutes. Exhausting. And that, that is how wrestling, I think, is being used here. David, David is exhausted by his thoughts. What's going through his mind, do you think? God, I'm your king! Why are you letting this happen to me? God, what would it say about your glory if you let my enemies triumph over me? Well, perhaps not. Perhaps more prosaically. Perhaps more simply. God, why is this happening to me? God, I thought if I followed you, things would go okay. God, have you forgotten about me? God, do you love me? God, are you there? Questions perhaps we've asked. Questions many of us will ask, I'm sure, at some point. Questions that when you're asking them, It's like wrestling. It's exhausting. And verse 2, it gives you sorrow of heart all the day. Questions that are hard when we ask them of ourselves. Questions sometimes that are even harder when we ask them about other people. Uh, I was was on the phone to one of my best mates this week. It's not his name. We'll call him Nigel. Nigel... Nigel, Got married at a sort of similar time to, to Megan and me. Uh, Megan and I have been married just over two years. I think, I think it's fair to say we've had the kind of normal teething problems that, that a lot of people have when they first get married, mainly because I'm an idiot uh, a lot of the time. But, but my friend Nigel, he, um, he's had all those kind of normal teething problems in his marriage, but he's also, he's also been suffering with depression since before he got married. His wife's employees were kind of dangling the bait of a promotion in front of her for months. And it didn't materialize. Then she, then she uh, decided to leave her job so that she'd have more time to spend with Nigel. They ran into fairly severe financial difficulties. And then just when we thought they were sort of getting back on, on an even keel, she develops uh, an unexplained pain in her abdomen. 
And in a few weeks' time, on her 30th birthday, she's got to go and see a consultant about explorative surgery. And yeah, obviously, obviously, far worse things happen to people. But even then, I had this psalm ringing in my ears as I was chatting to her. God, give him a break. How long? And those sort of thoughts are exacerbated, I think, when we buy into this. It's very easy to do. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you do it. When we buy into the kind of worldly wisdom that says, or that assumes, look, if things are going well in my life, it must be because God's pleased with me, of course. If things are going badly, there must be something wrong. Is that your? I mean, that's certainly my. Even though I know theologically that isn't the case, it's so easy for me to default to that. So if things are going badly, I just assume well, it must it must be because God is displeased with me, or it must be just because I'm just I'm just so second rate, I'm so B list that he just he can't be bothered dealing with me. And what happens then is that your circumstances become the sort of, of a barometer for how much you feel loved by God. That is the, those, that are, those sort of thoughts are thoughts that are exhausting to wrestle with. Those are the kind of thoughts that give you anguish of heart, verse 2, or sorrow of heart all day. Those are the kind of thoughts that sap your joy. Those are the kind of thoughts that so easily coil themselves around your hope, sometimes your sanity. Those are the kind of thoughts that will lead some of us down the dark path of depression. David's pain, feeling abandoned by God. And what does he what does he do in that? circumstance. I suppose it sounds quite cliche to say it really, but he does the only thing that you can do, and that is pray. It's verses 3 and 4. David prays. In the Hebrew, the first two words of this verse are kind of staccato imperatives. Look! Answer me! Anguish prayer of a man who feels abandoned. You know, just by just, actually just by way of aside, really, um, I'm sure many of us are, are sort of familiar. We've heard of the idea of of kind of self counselling or kind of Christian counselling, where you know when you when you're when you're sad or depressed or angry, whatever it would be, you, you preach a gospel truth to yourself. You heard of that, you guys? I'm talking about. And that's great. Obviously, keep doing that, of course. But there are some times where you're so exhausted from the wrestling. There are some times where you've got so much sorrow of heart. There are some times where you are so spent and shaken physically and mentally and spiritually that you can't you can't wrestle anymore. You can't preach to yourself anymore. And in those circumstances, you cry out. And that is fine to do. God, look on me. God, answer me. And that's what David does. 
Verse 3. God, look on me. Answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. Now, it's not entirely clear what that phrase, give light to my eyes, means. Uh, It's used a few times in the Old Testament. Uh, One one time it's used, uh, it describes what happens to to Jonathan, Saul's son. And he's he's been on a a long march with all his soldiers all day. He's incredibly weary. And he finds, a bit random, I think, he finds some honey uh, along the way. And he dips his spear in the honey and he tastes it. And scripture says, light came to his eyes. His eyes were enlightened. So this phrase, enlighten my eyes, it's, it's certainly got something to do with, with life-giving vitality. And, and I think along with that, the kind of emotional encouragement and succor that that brings. So I think David's saying, oh Lord, Lord, give me, give me life, give me hope, give me encouragement. But it's also, that phrase is also used in, in Psalm 19 where it's used in relation to God's commands. It says, the commands of the Lord give light to the eyes. So it's also got something to do with kind of a, a, a moral understanding or a moral realignment or, or a godliness, perhaps we might call it. I imagine that David, in some sense, means all three of those things. Oh God, look on me, answer me, help me, give me life. Give me back hope. Help me understand. Because for David here, it's serious. Verse 3, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. I don't suppose in the first instance David was talking about suicide here. He might have been. Certainly he knows that his enemies are going to gloat and triumph over him unless God does something. And so we wait. We we wait and we see what God is going to do. And we come to we come to the third section. Peace. Verses 5 and 6. This might be stretching the point a little bit. You can, you can decide and tell me afterwards. But some of the commentators pick this up. The, the three sections or stanzas, each, each, they get progressively shorter. So you have the relatively long one, which is David's pain, him pouring out what is wrong. Then you have something slightly shorter, the prayer. And then the final section is short. The section about peace is short. Perhaps, perhaps to reflect the simple and profound peace that David has found. And in the Hebrew, that, that but I, verse 5, but I, is, given, is put in an emphatic position in the sentence. But I. This speaks of new resolve. This speaks of a transformed situation. This speaks of a man whose eyes have been Enlightened. But I will trust in your unfailing love. And isn't it striking that in the first instance, no reference is made to any change in circumstance. 
There's no description of a miraculous slaying of the enemy, who or whatever that is. But I trust in your unfailing love. And again, the emphasis in the Hebrew isn't so much on, on, upon David's subjective trusting, although obviously that's important, but it is on the objective reality of God's unfailing, steadfast love. That is what has changed. That is what has brought light to David's eyes. He started the psalm thinking that God's love was forgetful, that God had forgotten him. He ends the psalm recognizing that God's love is unfailing. And that is what I want us to have ringing in our ears this evening. That is what I want us to have ringing in our ears this week and God willing the rest of our lives. The the main thing for us to remember, and I think it's going to come up on the screen, God's love is unfailing, not forgetful. And you'll see on your sheet, I've left, I've left a little blank there. You see, and I know, I know you think this would be a little bit childish. I know it's a little bit patronizing. But I seriously, please, I think there's pens all around, aren't there? Grab a pen and please fill that in. Seriously, I know you think it's crazy, but I promise you, it will help you remember it. It's good, there's pens being chucked across the aisle. That's what I like to see. God's love is unfailing, not forgetful. I was reading, um, I was reading a commentary by an old school preacher from last century called uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Have you heard of him? There's a few nods. And uh, it made me glad, actually, when I was reading that, that he wasn't my pastor, because he seemed to put it quite harshly in, this, in his commentary, actually. He said this, he said, Ah, oh, David, how like a fool you talk. I, I don't know if that's how Spurgeon spoke, but um, in my head it is. Ah, oh, David, how like a fool you talk. Can God forget his own beloved child? And he puts it harshly, but it's true. Regardless of circumstance, God's love is unfailing. Not forgetful. And I know it's hard to believe that. I know it's hard. So we come back to that poem, one you guys didn't like. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I've noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why when I needed you the most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, my son, my precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. God's love is unfailing, not forgetful. You know, and I, I don't know whether statistics can be believed. I, I was I was googling 
stuff about depression this week. And they reckon that the website I was on reckoned that one in ten men and one in four women would be affected by depression in their life. Personally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if it was if it was more than that. Now, obviously, I'm not claiming that as we remember this truth that God's love is unfailing, that it's going to be a silver bullet. Obviously, it's not going to make whatever suffering we had to deal with vanish. But it's certainly been my experience in, in, in battling in that kind of area, that, that, that as we believe that, even when it's hard, that regardless of circumstance, God's love is unfailing, not forgetful, that it helps. Certainly, never, never let your circumstances become the barometer of whether you feel loved by God. Because, you know, I said this was written by the man David, but but he was God's king, and he suffered. And his life, King David's life, was but a foretaste or a future echo of the life of, of King Jesus, his greatest son. The life of King Jesus, the man of sorrows, whose, whose birth basically precipitated something of a, of a genocide, who was a refugee when he was a toddler, who was derided in public, who was accused of having a demon. And there's a sense in which that as we read the Psalms, in some slightly mysterious way, they're a, they're a kind of window onto the prayer life of Jesus himself, King David's greatest son. You're not alone if you're suffering. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten you or abandoned you. What was true of Jesus is true of his people. That regardless of circumstance, if you are a Christian, God's love for you is unfailing, not forgetful. Verse 5, David says, My heart rejoices in your salvation. With his eyes enlightened, having remembered the steadfastness, the unfailingness of God's love, he looks back and he remembers God's salvation in the past. And you can do that as well, can't you, if you're a Christian? We heard this morning, didn't we, from, from 1 John 4, that, that God displayed his love for us in the world by sending his only son that we might have life through him. And he did that while you were still a sinner. And you can look back on that. Even, I know it's hard, but you can look back on that as the evidence in the past of God's unfailing love for you. And in the future, verse 6, David says, I will sing to the Lord that he has been good to me. And that's a bit confusing because the tenses seem to be a little bit jumbled. I will sing is in the future, but the you have been good to me is in the past. One commentator suggests that perhaps now having his eyes enlightened, David is now so sure that there will be a time when God will deliver him that he can speak about it in the past tense as if it has, has already happened. And the same is true for us. If you're a Christian, God has begun a good work in you. 
God has staked his reputation on doing you good, on bringing you to glory. And when we do eventually cross over the threshold to the promised land, when it lies open before us like the first day of a summer holiday, when we look back over our shoulders and survey our lives, it may not always seem like it now, but we will not then, from that high vantage point, find any cause to chide God. We will only be able to then look back in hushed wonder and praise him for his wisdom in ordering our lives how he did. Even though that's hard to believe sometimes. We will see that even in our darkest moments, the events of our lives were not arbitrary, accidental suffering afflicting us because God abandoned us. We were never, we were never forsaken. We were never left to the, the random chance of a meaningless universe. Our circumstances were never punishments from an angry God. If we were Christians, I promise you, I promise you, there will be a day when we will look back and see that the circumstances of our lives, every single one of them, were the wise orderings of a loving Father who, who loves us more, who loves us more effectively and more passionately, even than we love ourselves. Regardless of circumstance, God's love is unfailing, not forgetful. And I wonder if you're if you're not a Christian here tonight, wouldn't you love to have that assurance as you face life? It isn't wishful thinking, it isn't an emotional crutch, it isn't pie in the sky when you die. It's true. Because Jesus died and rose again. If you are a Christian, you can face the present knowing and saying with surety and certainty with the Apostle Paul that I know that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to sever you from God's love in Christ. And that is, the, that is the challenge that Jesus leaves us with tonight. Is, as he gently asks us, will you trust? Will you trust that there is no circumstance that can separate you from my unfailing love?